Our passage this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 38, 1 through 38. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a very solemn portion of Scripture because it is in the Old Testament, uh, verses, uh, chapters 38 through the first part of chapter 42, is one of the longest and most direct speeches we have from the Lord God in the Old Testament. And there is a great deal of solemnity here. And so uh, breaking it up isn't an easy thing to do. Uh, but bear with me, and we will. If you notice, we we're not we're starting stopping short of the whole chapter. It's the last couple of illustrations in this chapter. I think go well better with the animals that we have in chapter thirty-nine. That we'll be looking at. Uh, uh, but it is this is one of the places where the Lord is revealing Himself, and the one who reveals God. Is the Son of God, the image of God, the Word of God. And so uh, this has been understood as always the revealer of God, the one who makes the Father known to us. And this is the words of Christ, uh, pre incarnate Christ, the Son of God, because uh, it is also by Him that all things were created uh, in the Father. Uh, it's one God in three persons, but uh, this is a great deal that we need to to hear. Now, it is also true that, that the Lord God does not answer Job on Job's own terms. Uh, God calls Job to hear him according to the Lord's terms. And we often go to Scripture looking for the practical uh, lesson. And by practical, we mean something we can uh, put to use and do uh, something oftentimes we really mean life coaching and we want scripture to life coach us but one of the most practical lessons of scripture is to reveal God unto us because unless we know him uh, then there is no blessedness and the practical and I'll bring some practical uh, lessons to bear on the passage that we read this morning look at this morning, but I want us to understand that the most practical lesson from our passage today and in the next couple of weeks will be the knowledge of who God is. It is His revelation of Himself. And to know the Lord God is a practical thing. It is a practical thing if you know a politician. It is a practical thing if you know uh, the president of the bank that you bank with. It is a practical thing if you know a good doctor that you can harass. It is an infinitely more practical thing to know the God by whom all things exist and to whom all things must give an account. So let's pray before we read this passage and or I read it and preach it that he would bless it. And give us his spirit. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we, we come and we ask that you would give us, give us the same spirit who inspired these words. That he might dwell within our hearts and prepare our hearts to receive these words. We ask that Christ, that our knowledge of you would be magnified. We ask that we would be humbled by it. We pray, dear Lord, though, that you would give us eyes to see what you would have us see. That you would give us ears to hear 
and that you would give us hearts to understand, that we might be fruitful unto you, that we might be fruitful in humbling ourselves in godly fear, that we might be fruitful in putting our trust in you, that we might be without fear in this world. And give us the fruit of obedience to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 through 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth, as if it had issued out of the womb, when I made the cloud the garment thereof, and the thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and broke up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no farther, and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the day spring to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment, and from the wicked their light is withheld, and the high arm shall be broken. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou walked in search of the depth? Hast the gates of death been open unto thee, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breath of the earth? Declare, if thou knowest it all. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof, that thou shouldst take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldst know the paths to the house thereof? Knowest thou it, because thou wast then born, or because the number of thy days is great? Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hell which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? By what way is the light parted, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? Who hath divided a watercourse for the overflowing of waters, or a way for the lightning of thunder, to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste ground, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth? Hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Out of whose womb came the ice, and the hoary frost of heaven, who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season, or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that the abundance of waters may cover thee? Canst thou send lightnings, that they may go and say unto thee, Here we are? Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who hath given understanding to the heart? 
Who can number the clouds in wisdom? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together? Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And his people said, Amen. Job has been asking for an audience with the Lord. Uh, one of the things that he has groaned uh, under the, uh, the ministrations of his friends, which admittedly were quite lousy, uh, the, the hardships that he has endured, he has sought to put his case before the Lord because he knew he was not a hypocrite. He knew he was not necessarily sinless because he confesses so. But rather that he always confessed his sin, that he was repentant, that he didn't dwell in sin or love sin, but he loved the Lord and trusted the Lord. And even when the Lord showed himself against him, he nevertheless sought the Lord. And so he has wanted an audience with the Lord. And we get this, and we get this in several places if you turn to chapter 9. And we'll just get a little bit of a review of his desire for an audience. In chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, the last two verses, Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. And then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. The hand of God was heavy upon him so that he couldn't speak unto the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 2, I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Show me whereof thou hast contended with me. Chapter 13, verses 15 through 22. He says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will nevertheless maintain my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I have ordered my calls. I know that I shall be justified. Who is it that will plead with me? For if now I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. Only do two things unto me. Then I will not hide myself from thee. Withdraw thy hand far from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Then call thou, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and answer thou me. Not terrible words there. Chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. His sons came to... Honor and he knew it not. And it is, excuse me, that's not the right um, reference. And I'm not going to, to look it up there. I'm just going to go to chapter 23, verses 2 through 7. He says, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I would come even to a seat. I would order my calls before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put his strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, and so should I be delivered from my judge. In chapter 31, in his last speech, towards the close of it in 35, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me. And so, the Almighty does. But again, we, we have to ask, Job, is, Job has uh, 
contented himself with the notion that once he has the audience with the Lord, he will give his ear unto the Lord and he would understand what the Lord has, has desired. But the, the question that comes to us is, especially as we read these things, can Job bear an audience with the Lord? Does he know really what he's asking for? Now, it might be tempting to say that as with the devils and, and the others, that we ought to be careful what we ask for with the Lord. That we don't know all things and that, that he might give us exactly what he, we want, but what we want would ruin us. Sort of like the, the short story about the monkey's paw or every genie that's ever found in a bottle who gives three wishes all to the ruination of whoever it is that asked them. But remember, this is exactly contrary to, to Job, we've already seen. Uh, to Jesus Christ, ask, knock, seek, and your Father will give to, to you good things. Which of you would ask of your Father a, a piece of bread and He would give you a serpent? And it, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good things to those you ask? We ought never to, to, to fear asking for the wrong things because the Holy Spirit is given to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the Holy Spirit is given to us to help shape our desires before the Lord that when we ask in sincerity and seeking good things, our ignorance is not going to trip us up. That if we ask for something that would ruin us, He will tell us no, but He will give good things to us nevertheless. We can trust God to do that. We don't have to... To, to be fearful in the way that we phrase our approaches unto the Lord. We don't have to, as with the ancient pagans and, and their, their false gods who are really devils, uh, seek to propitiate their wrath and seek to uh, manipulate their understanding so that they would not be harmed by their lords. So this is not what God is doing. However... There is a certain sense in which we do, nevertheless, ask for things that are not good for us. And we do ask for things that aren't really what we need in the situation. And it is right and proper that God would humble us in that. And this is exactly what the Lord is doing. It's one of the things that He is doing. We know, if you read ahead to chapter 42, you know that Job is vindicated. That whatever the Lord is telling Job here, it's not to, to justify the accusations of his friends, the accusations of the devil, the accusations of Elihu, but rather it's to prepare him to hear Job's own vindication, not as, as a vindication that will enlarge his head, as we would say, and make him holier than thou, and would ultimately build him up to ruin him because of pride. But first he has to be completely humbled. And I have contended, and I do believe that even here, Job is more humble than his friends, but there is always more work to do for us in six saints. And so the Lord is actually preparing him for his blessing. And he does this first. Uh, in a, a, this, this humble, well, it's not first, it's all throughout, is an inquisition, a catechism from God. And we see here a catechism that picks up in a superficial manner Elihu's catechism about the weather 
uh, but he extends it more in great depth into things that Job had no knowledge of uh, and could have no knowledge of except the Lord revealed them. And we see glimpses, uh, fascinating glimpses into the ways of the Lord in these things. And yet everything he says pours more mystery and more awareness of our own ignorance into everything that he reveals. It's, kind of, it's, it's, the, it's the demonstration of if we're reading this attentively. This is, this is giving proof to the proverb, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And yet it is a knowledge. It is knowing. And the Lord, by humbling Job's knowledge, is actually increasing Job's knowledge. And, and so he catechizes him about the world he lives in. He will go on after this to catechize him a different aspect of the world he lives in. The animals that, that he shares it with in chapter 39 uh, to, the verse, uh, to the first part of 40. In 40, he brings forth behemoth. And 41, leviathan. And these are more than creatures. And if you're going and trying to figure out which zoological categorization that behemoth and leviathan are, you are not approaching this as the Lord is revealing it unto Job. For these are, are things that get to the, really the heart of Job's issues. But we'll get there when we get there. First, about the world he lives in. And let's just look at them. Let's take them. There's about, depending on how you want to divide it up, there's about nine things here that are given to us. And we'll go through quickly, uh, but, but with interest. He asked him first what Job knows about the earth's foundation. <clears throat> everything that Job has seen, everything that Job knows about being sturdy, it <clears throat> is built up with a foundation, with a rock. And, and has a firm platform on which to exist as a cornerstone. But even Job knows that the world is not hung in that way. He's already said that the Lord has hung the world upon nothing. This is their, their, their common knowledge. That the world's foundation is strangely and mysteriously, uh, and even it's still strange and mysterious when we know Isaac's um, laws of gravitation Sometimes when we put words that sound scientific to something, we think we know about it, and all we know is vocabulary. The world is hung on its own foundation, which is its center, and that's such a strange thing. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if you know. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who has stretched the line upon it? Where was thou, or whereupon are the foundations fastened, and who laid the cornerstone thereof? And note, note the picture there, because this is one of the more fascinating little tidbits here. Who laid the foundation of the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? When an important building is built, you know, there's a ceremony, or used to be ceremonies, they're not done that much anymore. And when the cornerstone is laid, there is, a, there is gratitude and and in that day, there were prayers to be made because if you didn't build it right and you, know, you didn't have OSHA or, or whoever inspected those sorts of things to come out, uh, you, you depended upon the gods, if you were pagan, upon God, if you weren't, to make sure that building held together, that that cornerstone was well laid. And so you made sure that you praised the Almighty. When the earth was created, there was an audience there and a celebration too, he tells us. The morning stars and the sons of God. And 
Uh, clearly, he's speaking of the invisible world, the, the angelic hosts that we would call them, the powers and thrones and principalities. Perhaps, because uh, it, it says they all did, perhaps this is before the fall, or perhaps the glory of the earth's creation was such that even the fallen angels had to acknowledge it, and they were there at the ceremony. We tend to look down upon ceremony because we have a simple ceremony and we know the dangers of elaborate ceremonies. But it's interesting to note that God himself had ceremonies before there was a man to, to observe one. That, that creation wasn't just something he did. It was a holy thing to be celebrated. And it was celebrated. And Paul, and Paul, and Job is getting a view here of, of the, the fact that the world isn't just hung on nothing and is mysterious, but is celebrated by the invisible powers. The things he knows nothing about are filled with glory. And he goes on, he says, can you wrangle the sea? And, and I've already mentioned the view of the sea in the ancient world, particularly to those in the Levant, those in, in that area of Abraham and his descendants, the Hebrews. They didn't like the water. When God blessed them, they went through the sea on dry land. When they went to the water, they were swallowed by wells or shipwrecked on islands. They didn't like it. It was dangerous. And even to those groups of people that, that, that made great use of the water, they often, one of their chief gods and demons that they propitiated were the gods of the sea because it's very dangerous. And look how God talks about it in verses 8 through 11. Who shut up the sea with doors and broke it forth as if it had issued from the womb? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and the thick darkness, the swaddling band for it, and broke it up for my decreed place, and set bars on the doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no farther. And there shalt thou proud ways be stayed. And such power and force, uh, the very embodiment of pride in the universe, are in the world that we know, the seas and their crushing ways. God said he brought it forth out of the world like a baby being born. And he swaddled it up and put it in its place. And so what seems like the bars of hell, as we will see, as, as, as the great raging of chaos... God treats as if it is a baby being put in the cradle. That's the image he gives. And so, but note, a mystery here is also revealed to Job. Because the, the waters are something that needs to be conquered. And God brings it forth as a cherished child, a creation that he loves. So even this which Job would view as his enemy... Is something cherished by God. There is much more, there's a different point of view than his own point of view. And this is a good lesson for Job. It's a good lesson for you and me. Did you see, give the son his marching orders? Verses 12 through 15. Uh, the, the son is habitually referred to in, in the book of Job as just the light in the poetic form. Thou who has commanded the morning since thy days. And calls the day spring to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it. It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment, and from the wicked their light is withheld, and the high arm shall be broken. And we see two such marching orders that, that Job may never have given a consideration. I mean, the sun is useful for a great many things, it was worshipped as a god by the pagans for good reason. 
bad reason, but understandable good reasons. It is very profitable. And here we see the sun has, it, it, it's working to expose wickedness. Wickedness is typically done in the shadows and at night. And, and here there's daylight so that the shadows in the night and the wickedness won't uh, overthrow the world. In the latter part of that verse, that the morning, the first 15, is, is sort of the day of judgment. That has been the case throughout most of, first, most of history. When somebody is going to be hung, they were hung at first light. When somebody was going to be executed, they were executed at first light. That's when the sun comes up. That's when judgment is to be meted out. Things done in darkness are reckoned in the day. And the sun does that. It does that in a very indirect way, but it is... It shows the intricacies and the variety of God's providence. There's another way here too, though, uh, that it's as, as clay to the seal. It's the seal that goes on the clay and gives the, clay, the, the impression and the beauty to the clay. Well, the sun is what gives the beauty and clothes the earth with beauty. And without the sun and its beneficial rays upon the land, there'd be no trees, there'd be no flowering, there'd be no life. And, and so the world itself is clothed by the work of the sun. And these are things that, uh, that you know, Job probably acknowledged the beauty of the world. He has, we've seen it. He acknowledges the exposure of wickedness. But here we have a connection. We, it's much like Psalm 19 where it starts out praising God's works. And it uses an example, the running of the sun as a bridegroom runs a race. And then almost immediately it talks about the beneficial effects of the law. And it almost seems like two psalms stuck together, but it's not. That much of what the son does in the first part of the psalm, the law does in the second part of the psalm. That there's a connection and unity and what we call beauty, properly so called. That connection that shows us in the great variety of the world, the unity of purpose and the unity of things. Job can consider that in his own troubles. That, that perhaps, perhaps I'm not being punished, but perhaps this is fulfilling a unity of things that I'm only vaguely aware of. 16 through 18. Have you entered into the domains of death? Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? And hast thou walked in search of the death? And we might think of these things as... Um, going back to the sea earlier, but no. Uh, have the gates of death been opened unto thee, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breach of the earth? Declareth thou knowest it. Yeah, have you entered into the domain of dead? And by the way, even today, the bottom of the sea is the domain of the dead as far as you and I are concerned. Yeah, there might be whales, squids, and all sorts of nasty other things that we... Uh, view that differently. But when he's talking to us, he's talking to us. And it is. And one of the things at the end of time, when, when the world is commanded to give up her dead, one of the great armies of the dead that come up unto the Lord comes out of the sea. Probably because the great wicked before the great flood were all flush there. And, and there is a certain notion that the giants of the ancient days, the wicked... Uh, their hell and the mouth of the hell that they're in is in the bottoms of the sea. And we don't want to make a mythology of what is here, but we also don't want to make materialistic 
what a world that God has given many layers to. And, and these would not be things that Job would ever separate in his mind. And really, you and I shouldn't separate them either. We run into problems because we run into this text like materialist atheists. Not like servants of a God that we believe founded all these things. That the underworld is a world that is beneath us. Whether it is geographically and physically so or not, it doesn't matter. But spiritually, can we enter into the gates of death? Absolutely not. It's a place that is foreign to us. It is a place that, that even when we have the revelation of heaven and hell in Scripture, is always given in great mystery and, and wonder and dread. It's also helpful for us, because we're in a different position than Job, it's helpful for us to remember that the one who is revealing these things to him is the one when he comes in the flesh and then reveals himself to John in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. uh, He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Who could answer this? Who could answer this catechism but Jesus Christ in the flesh? I have the keys of death and hell. But Job doesn't. And it is a great mystery to Job. And as he's on the brink of death and really desiring death, it is good to know that this is a great mystery to him and this is something that he shouldn't be running to without greater knowledge. He asked him in verse 19 through 21, Can you recall the way of light and the place of darkness? And here's an interesting uh, distinction there. Um, it's not the place of light and the place of dark. It's the way of the light and the place of the dark. One is more active, the other is passive. Uh, he speaks of these distinctly from the sun. Where were you in the light? Or where is the way the light dwells? Or is for darkness? Where is the place thereof? That you should take it to the bound thereof, and that thou should know the paths of the house thereof. Knowest thou it because thou wast then born? Or because the number of thy days is great? He doesn't ask this about the other things. And it's interesting to know that light is the first of God's creation, it predates the sun, it predates the world. I think even that certain theories of science would, would kind of understand that. The reason why the speed of light is such an important aspect of, of astronomical investigation is because there's something to light that is independent of what we consider to be its sources. Um, that's just an interesting way. But, but does Job have such age? No. He wasn't there. He wasn't born. And then he goes on in verse 22 through 30 to speak of the weather. He speaks of it differently than Elihu, but he speaks of it in verse 22 and 23, the armory of judgment, the snow and the hail that God has reserved for the day of battle and the day of war. Do you know where that is? He's using... Uh, what Job knows, when something's brought forth, it has to be brought forth out of an armory. We, we, we think we know where snow and hail comes from, but it's still mysterious. There, there isn't, it doesn't really, it's not really analogous to the things that we can do, that it just comes when necessary and is not there when it's not necessary, that God doesn't really need stores. There is the, 
the wilderness that's being watered, verses 24 through 27. There's a whole world that man has nothing to do with. That God does things that, that don't benefit man, and He lavishes uh, uh, attention to it. This is the same thing that Jesus says when He says two sparrows are sold for a farthing or whatever, and not one falls to the ground, but your Father knows how much more valuable are you than sparrows. But part of the point of what Jesus is saying that the sparrows are part of His attention. One of the things that people who would scoff at the Lord God will say, we are so insignificant in this great universe of things. Why would God show, care what we do? Why would God care that we sin? But that's because they don't even understand or conceive of the notion of infinitude. They think that infinitude is something like a, a Marvel comic book where it's just a strong man. As if we, re, we worship a, a divine a Thor or a divine Iron Man or divine Superman. But that's not the picture that the Lord reveals of Himself. He's infinite. That means He has no limits. He has no upper limits. He has no lower limits. He has no middle limits. There's none of these things matter to Him. It doesn't take any reserve. It does not use up any of His resources to give attention to the smallest particle that we can conceive of and lavish it for complete uh, knowing and, and providing for and sustaining. And it just goes up the hierarchy of being. And we're in there, but we're not everywhere. And God does things that have nothing to do with us and lavishes attention on the world for other concerns. We're not the center of God's world, at least... By, by, by the, the base reckoning of the wonders of creation. One of the great good things that the good news tells us is that there is a great deal of attention focused on us and will be. But there still are wildernesses that, you know, you consider the vast worlds, the universe that we can perceive with a telescope. And what's going on there, it doesn't matter. But we know God is working there just as He's working here. The origins of the waters. You know, it's not like our own origins. 28 to 30, He's asking, you know, how is, how is the waters gendered? Who's the father of the rain? Where's the womb of, of, of the rivers? And these sorts of things. You know, not everything even kind of matches the same way uh, humanity or, or the animal kingdom propagates and flourishes. There's all sorts of different kinds of life in the universe. And, and God is saying here that it, from his perspective, the waters themselves have a life that's very different from what we categorize as life. But they do have a life. And they do have a certain... Uh, a way about them that is under God's control and He delights in and, and it mystifies us. 31 to 33, manipulating the heavens. And He speaks of these, uh, of these constellations, the Pleiades, the constellation that rises in the spring, Orion, but out of the winter. Uh, the, the notion, the great one of the things the Magi and, and the ancient astronomers would have loved to have done is figured out the laws of the, the heavens and that's why they learned about them so that they could manipulate them and perhaps keep 
winter back and bring spring in early. But that was impossible. It is impossible to do. Uh, Mazaroth is, is a southern um, constellation and is in the, the Hebrew. There's a lot of stuff we, we're not absolutely positive of. Octurus, a fall one. It goes on, but, but these are laws and mysteries that are beyond Job. Uh, and, and beyond his manipulation. It's not magic. He asks, will the rain and storm serve you? Verse 34 and 35, and then picks it back up after uh, 36, 37, and 38. Will they answer your call? Will they give attention to you? No. Again, there is one who does. There is one who can and did say, peace be still. And the rains and waves heard. I mean, one of the reasons, as I mentioned before, Jesus does these things. One of the reasons he walks calmly upon the waters because there's only one that rides the waters. There's only one that rides the sea. There's only one that rides the winds. And that is the Lord God that made heaven and earth. And in Christ Jesus is the Lord God that made heaven and earth. That's a mystery for us to know and ponder. It's a mystery that Job gets only the slightest glimpse of. When his Redeemer shall stand upon the ashes. And he will see him in his resurrected flesh. But I want to, to, to bring it to a close as we look at verse 36. And some of these mysteries are, are expanded and known more. We can point to our, our geology textbooks and our, our weather textbooks. And I still think that a lot of what we say we know is is really masquerading its knowledge and we just have named things and named their mysteries and think by naming the mystery and knowing the name, we know the mystery. That's, that's something that vocabulary tends to do. Uh, the sea monster of old is now called a giant squid or an oarfish and, and we think that somehow we've tamed it. But it's still what it is. It's still, it still was a danger or a wonder Verse 36, who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who hath given understanding to the heart? Elihu says in verse 8 of 32, there is a spirit of man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. That, that answer today, one of the great mysteries of a materialistic universe, one of the great mysteries that science cannot penetrate because it refuses to even acknowledge the, the invisible world is the, the mystery of consciousness. You know, if we are the product of random chances and random operations, how miraculous is it that we have an understanding that nevertheless can plumb the depths of this world? Why is it that we can see accurately the world that we're in? Why is it that we can't, we don't just acknowledge and perceive it as the animals perceive it, but we can think about it. That we have, as Solomon writes, eternity in our hearts. That we desire to do what we cannot do to plumb the depths of infinity. Have you ever thought about how it is that you know and what it is that you know and the thoughts behind your thoughts? And the way that understanding comes. It's, it's really not possible for you to. It's not one of these things that, because we're using it as we're thinking it, and it's, it's a vicious circle of, of, it just is, and it's an axiom. We have to, 
this is what Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And that's as far as you could go. I must exist because I'm thinking about existence. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Even man can't plumb his heart, but the Lord God holds all things in judgment. These are the great mysteries. And so what are the uses? Well, I think, let's put ourselves in Job's hands. And, you know, let's acknowledge, too, that we suffer as well. We don't, are not suffering, thankfully, as Job was suffering. But we all are in a time of frustration and fear. And when frustrated with God's ways, we need to consider those everyday mysteries. We're looking to high things and we want high answers. But we have great mysteries right in front of us. And we need to remember that we're not called to know all that God does or why He does all that He does. But we are to hear Him when He starts to reveal Himself. And we ought to satisfy, the word satisfy, satisfy ourselves with what He has revealed about Himself. Because it's good. And it's always positive. I mean, there's a warning there, but it is, there is a God that seeks to be merciful and is merciful. And then remember how mercifully condescending the Lord is. The Lord comes to answer Job with hard questions. But he's not asking questions that accuse Job of hypocrisy like his friends did. And he's not accusing Job of even blasphemy like Elihu did. He's only tempering Job's attitude, his rash words that Job might hear properly and know properly his Lord and then receive the blessing. In our passions, we need to always remember our place. We ought to be bold with the Lord. That is one of the lessons of Job. Job is properly bold with the Lord. He's wrestling with Him. But in that boldness, we, got to take our, our, we have to take also the consequences of that boldness. Israel wrestled with God and he went away with a broken hip. It wasn't an easy thing to do. We wrestle with the Lord and we have to take up a cross and follow Him and deny ourselves. It's not an engagement that is without cost. It has wonderful blessings. Blessings that make the cost look like nothing. As Paul said, I glory in those thorns in my flesh. Because I know the Lord ever better. And remember that He promises to hear. He promises to hear in Christ, which means that we are in submission to Him, but we're trusting Him. Though He slay me, yet will I turn to Him, says, says Job. We confess our need and unworthiness, and then we are prepared to hear Him in His vindication and his declaration that we are righteous. But we don't put the cart before the horse. We don't go in pride and presumption. We take the hardships of the world and we glory in them as revelations of our Lord. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ and we ask that you would keep us in your word and as we are beset with our own incapacity even to know you fully, we ask that you would satisfy us with the knowledge that you have revealed in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. 
give us his life, uh, that we might cling to you, and that we might see the good that you work in all things. For Christ's glory, in whose name we pray. Amen.